Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. My name's Casey Paul Griffiths. I'm the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, along with Mary Jane Woodger, and I'm your guest host for the week. And this week, we are going to be walking through Doctrine and Covenants, sections 111 to 114. So if you'll open your scriptures up to section 111, let's dive right in. Now, there might be the biggest contrast in historical circumstance from section to section in the leap from section 110 to 111 than any other place in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 110, you'll recall, is this glorious appearance of uh, Jesus Christ, of Moses, Elias, and Elijah in the Kirtland Temple, and Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery receiving the keys. Then you turn the page to section 111, and all of a sudden, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are in this bizarre place, Salem, Massachusetts, home to the famous Salem Witch Trials, and they're doing something that doesn't seem super related to what was happening in the last section. Well, this section was received late in the summer of 1836, August 6th, 1836. So the Kirtland Temple is dedicated that spring, and then Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and Sidney Rigdon travel to the eastern United States. They visit New York City, they visit Boston, and finally they come to Salem, Massachusetts, and that's where section 111 is received. Now, we don't really know um, for sure what was going on with this trip, but there's a few clues that help us. For instance, um, Oliver writes a letter uh, to his brother, Warren, uh, and tell us why they're going there. Um, we know that the trip was at least partially motivated because they were worried over f- the tr- finances of the church. Building the Kirtland Temple was really expensive. Uh, combine that with the loss of church properties in Missouri and Zion's camp and all they'd been trying to do to help the members of the church that were cast out of their homes in Missouri, uh, things had started to pile up. And we know that they traveled um, to the east, at least partially, to try and find some way to alleviate the financial concerns that were rising in the church at that time. We do have a couple uh, sources, some which are really questionable, as to why they traveled to Salem. For instance, one's an 1843 pamphlet written by James C. Brewster, who spoke of, quote, a house that was rented in the city of Boston with the expectation of finding a large sum of money buried in or near the cellar. Now, we don't exactly trust this source because Brewster was disfellowshipped from the church in 1837 when he was just 16 years old, and he writes the pamphlet a few years later, six years later, accusing church leaders of treasure-seeking. There's a second source, however, in 1889, And this is 53 years after the prophet goes to Salem, where a guy named Ebenezer Robinson writes a more detailed account of the journey. Now, Ebenezer Robinson is a little bit more 
of a respected source than uh, James Brewster. Robinson works closely with Joseph Smith while he's in Kirtland, but he does leave the church after Joseph Smith's death, and he writes his account of the trip to Salem um, while he's outside the church, specifically while he's affiliating with an apostate church led by David Whitmer. Now, what Robinson wrote was that, quote, a brother in the church by the name of Burgess had come to Kirtland and stated that a large amount of money had been secreted in the cellar of a certain house in Salem, Massachusetts, which belonged to a widow, and he thought he was the only person now living who had knowledge of it or location of the house. We saw the brother Burgess, but Don Carlos told us with regard to the hidden treasure. His statement was credited by the brethren, and steps were taken to try and secure the treasure. So the story that Ebenezer Robinson tells does fit with some other sources we have from the time. For instance, uh, there's a promissory note to Jonathan Burgess dated August 17, 1836, that's published as part of the Joseph Smith papers. And Joseph Smith, while he's in Salem, right? a letter to Emma Smith telling them that they very lucky and providentially found the house of Brother Burgess uh, in that letter. There's also problems with uh, Robinson's account, so we need to be careful with it too. For instance, Robinson in his account states that Joseph Smith rented the house in question, but just failed to find the treasure. When Joseph wrote to Emma Smith, he indicates that they were unable to rent or even gain access to the house. And this letter was written about two weeks after the group arrived in Salem, and they left shortly after the letter was sent, indicating that the group never gained access to the house, as Ebenezer Robinson said they did. We should also note that Ebenezer Robinson wrote his account a long time after these events took place place and didn't participate in them. And he left the church over temporal concerns. So he may have been trying to get a shot off at Joseph Smith. However, in the revelation, the Lord does assure the elders that there are more treasures than one for you in this city. That's section 111 verse 10 and counsels them to inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city. That's verse nine. So if seeking treasure was what motivated Joseph Smith and his associates to visit Salem, they never really follow up on this concern. Though Joseph uh, wrote to Emma and told her he thought they could maybe gain access to the house in a few months. Whatever the motivations were for the trip, it's clear that this is coming at a point in time when there's distress over the finances of the church. And Joseph Smith and his friends are just trying to find a way to, to solve those concerns. Uh, the growing financial crisis in the church in Kirtland is going to lead to a spiritual crisis. And that's uh, discussed a lot in section 112 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which we'll get to shortly. So first, let's take a look at this um, section. If you look in verse one, the Lord kind of gently chides them, says, I, the Lord, your God, am not displeased with you coming on this journey, notwithstanding your follies. And then he comforts them a little bit by saying, I have much treasure for you in the city for the benefit of Zion and many people in the city whom I will gather out in due time for the benefit of Zion through your instrumentality. Therefore, it's expedient that you should form an acquaintance with men in the city as you shall be led as it shall be given to you. So he's kind of gently saying the treasure isn't the money that they were seeking, but maybe the people that they'll meet along the way. Um, the Lord probably, when he says, notwithstanding your folly, uh, probably is referring more to their lack of faith in the Lord's power to help the church overcome its temporal concerns. For instance, if you go back to section 104, the Lord counsels Joseph and other church members that they'll be able to pay their debts if they would, uh, quote, humble yourselves before me and obtain this blessing by your diligence and humility and the prayer of faith. That's section 104. You can look at verses 79 through 86 for that. 
The leaders of the church may have seen the rumors of treasure in Salem as a quick answer to their prayers, and really, like all of us, wanted an easy end to the problems that they're struggling with. But quick fixes for our problems are relatively rare, and problems are normally overcome with sustained effort and the Lord's assistance. Now, the Lord's assurance that, quote, they shall not discover your secret parts refers to a Hebrew idiom for being publicly humiliated. You can see that used in Isaiah 3.17. And the brethren on the trip might have been worried about embarrassment linked to the failure of their plan to find treasure in Salem, if that's why they came. But in context, I mean, the trip to Salem really demonstrates that Joseph Smith and other leaders sincerely desired to follow the Lord's counsel to pay their debts. He tells them in section 104, verse 78, that they need to pay their debts and deal justly with their creditors. And that's what they're trying to do. Now, the second part of the revelation addresses uh, something that had been worrying them uh, for a long time, which was the concerns over Zion, which in this context means Missouri. The Lord tells them, concern not yourselves about Zion, for I will deal mercifully with her. Tarry in this place and the regions round about. And the, and the place where it is my will, you should tarry for the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of the spirit that shall flow into you. He also tells them, uh, inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city, for there are more treasures than one for you in this city. Now, Joseph Smith and his associates do stay in Salem about two weeks. And while they're here, uh, they, they note and write about invaluable things that they learn about the history of this city and this area and their heritage as American citizens. For instance, uh, Joseph Smith and others, while they're there for a couple of weeks, um, learn about the Puritans in Salem, including the famous witch trials that happened there. They also learn more about the history of the American Revolution and what its meaning for them was. In fact, they visit Bunker Hill, the site of one of the early battles of the American Revolution. Oliver later writes, quote, from this, we went to Bunker Hill and viewed the ground, which on the 17th of June, 1775, was drenched with blood for the liberty I enjoy. The history of this battle is so familiar in the minds of readers that it would be occupying space unnecessarily to give even a detail. But judge of the feelings of my heart when I viewed from the top of the monument the entire theater on which was fought one of the most important battles ever recorded in history. And not only do they learn about American history, things like the American Revolution while they're in Salem and the surrounding areas, but they also learn about religious persecution. Uh, for instance, one of them, um, one of the places that they write about, the Catholic Ursuline Convent. Uh, they go there, and this makes a powerful impression, especially on Joseph Smith. The, the convent included a school, a chapel, and other worship spaces. And anti-Catholics, because there's a lot of sentiment against uh, Catholicism in this part of the country, um, the convent was attacked by a mob that burned the convent to the ground on August 11th, 1834, just two years before Joseph and his friends arrive in Salem. The convent was completely destroyed, despite the fact that most of the students who attended the school came from Protestant families. And the scene of the wreckage was so moving to the men, themselves victims of religious persecution, Oliver Cowdery wrote, Quote, it was religious persecution, a disgraceful, shameful religious persecution, one or more religious societies rising against another. Is this religion? The good people here being very tenacious of right, as well as the traditions of their ancestors, thought it doing God's service to burn a Catholic convent because the Catholic religion was different from their own. I confess I retired from the scene of Mowbray with a heavier heart than from the far-famed Bunker Hill. Joseph Smith also has intense feelings over seeing the convent burned down 
He later writes in the history of the church, Well did the Savior say concerning by their fruits ye shall know them. And if the wicked mob who destroyed the Charleston convent and the cool, calculating religious lookers-on who inspired their hearts with deeds of infamy do not arise and redress the wrong and restore the injured fourfold, they shall in turn receive the measure they have meted out till the just indignation of a righteous God is satisfied. When will man cease to war with man and rest from his sacred right of worshiping God according as his conscience dictates? Holy Father, hasten the day. It's interesting that all of this happens right before Joseph Smith and his friends are about to endure an intense period of persecution, both from members of their church, that's primarily in Kirtland, and then from people outside the church, that's in Missouri. As Joseph Smith is able to think and reflect on the causes of religious persecution, how dangerous it is, and he speaks out really strongly against religious persecution throughout the remainder of his life, especially in Nauvoo. Now, in in consequence of the Lord's promise in verse 2, where he says, I have many people in the city whom I will gather this time. It doesn't seem like Joseph Smith and his associates during this initial trip to Salem are very successful in um, converting many people. But a few years later, in 1841, elders Erastus Snow and Benjamin Winchester are called on a mission to preach the gospel in Salem. Uh, they had success just over a year after they arrived there. There's reports that there's 90 members of the church in Salem and a local newspaper even notes with alarm the quote Mormonism is advancing with a perfect rush in the city. So section 111 does a couple things for us. It illustrates that things are starting to get bad in the church when it comes to finance. It also illustrates that sometimes what we expect to get out of an experience isn't exactly what the Lord expects us to get out of it. I think they were going there believing that they could find an easy solution to the financial problems of the church when there wasn't one. Uh, But the Lord also took the time to instruct them about their heritage and help prepare them for some of the challenges they were going to face, especially as the apostasy rears its head in Kirtland and then the persecutions of Missouri come up. So let's go to section 112. And section 112 is probably the best section to explore the Kirtland apostasy, the severe apostasy that happens early on in the church and unfortunately causes Kirtland, the place where the first temple was built, to sort of cease as a meaningful church center for a number of years. Section 112 is a revelation given to Thomas B. Marsh who's the original president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, called in this dispensation. It was given at a time when growing dissent over Joseph Smith's leadership in Kirtland caused Marsh and others, including David Patton and William Smith, all members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, to travel from far west Missouri to Kirtland to address concerns among other members of the Quorum of the Twelve. When they arrive in Kirtland, they found out that Joseph Smith and the First Presidency had sent two other apostles, Heber C. Kimball and Orson Hyde, across the Atlantic to open Great Britain for the preaching of the gospel. And this really, really upset Thomas B. Marsh. Thomas B. Marsh believed it was his responsibility to direct the Twelve in taking the gospel to other nations and was really frustrated that missionaries were sent to England without consulting him. So, contrary to Marsh's expectations, here's the backstory. A month earlier, Joseph Smith felt inspiration to call Heber C. Kimball on a mission to England. Heber C. Kimball himself later notes, quote, On Sunday, the 4th of June, 1837, the prophet Joseph Smith came to me while I was seated in the front of the stand above the sacrament table on the Melchizedek side of the temple in Kirtland, and whispering to me said, Brother Heber, 
the Spirit of the Lord has whispered to me, let my servant Heber go to England and proclaim my gospel and open the door of salvation to that nation. Section 112 addresses this mission call and Thomas B. Marsh's anger over it, but that's just part of the problem too. The reason why there's dissent among other members of the Quorum of the Twelve is because of a financial crisis that was happening in Kirtland. Um, in an attempt to try and help the poor members of the church that are gathering to Kirtland, Joseph Smith and other leaders of the church uh, launch a new uh, banking venture called the Kirtland Safety Society. The Kirtland Safety Society is a church-owned financial institution that they thought would help some of the poorer members of the church that were moving to Kirtland get the financial support that they needed to buy homes and farms and everything like that. Now, for a number of reasons, including uh, pressures from outside, there were people from nearby Painesville that wanted the bank to fail, that basically purchased all the bonds of the bank and then cashed them in, and other people in the church like Warren Parish that were dishonest in the way the Kirtland Safety Society was run. The Safety Society runs into problem almost immediately. Joseph Smith pours as many resources as he can into trying to save the Kirtland Society, and he actually winds up in more debt than anybody else. But the failure of the Safety Society really jars a couple people who thought the prophet couldn't make mistakes. Um, they couldn't understand why if Joseph Smith was a prophet, he didn't foresee the failure of the bank. And this causes a number of people, including some prominent church leaders, to criticize Joseph Smith. Among the 12, uh, John F. Boynton, Luke and Lyman Johnson, and even Parley P. Pratt spoke out against Joseph Smith. Um, now, there's no doubt that the failure of the Kirtland Bank was difficult for everybody. But the way that people reacted to it really was telling about um, their testimony. For instance, the late Kimball, who is the wife of Heber C. Kimball, writes to her husband and she says, quote, Now, after all I've said about this dissenting party, there are some of them that I love and have great feeling and pity for them. I know they have been tried to the very quick. And what grieves me most of all is this, that many things which they tell, I have no doubt, but what they are true. Still, I do not think they're justifiable in the course that they've taken. So there were bad things going on, but Thomas B. Marsh and a couple others uh, basically overreact to what's happening. And eventually this is going to lead to the downfall of the church in Kirtland and Joseph Smith having to flee Kirtland as a meaningful church center. So let's take a look in the verses really fast. So Thomas B. Marsh approaches Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith says he'll receive a revelation on his behalf. Uh, for instance, starts out by saying, uh, Verily thus saith the Lord, this is verse 1, Unto my servant Thomas, I have heard thy prayers, and thine alms have come up as a memorial before me, in behalf of those thy brethren, who were chosen to bear testimony of my name, and send it abroad among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and ordained through the instrumentality of my servants. The Lord actually tells him, let, let thy heart, this is verse 4, be of good cheer before my face. Thou shalt bear record of my name, not only unto the Gentiles, unto the Jews, and thou shalt send forth my word unto the ends of the earth. So the Lord's not removing him. He's basically saying, look, I'm, I've got a mission for you. But in verse 10, this is where we kind of get to the heart of the matter. The Lord tells him, be thou humble. And the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. You might remember there's a really well-known hymn named after this. Now, in illustrating what's happening with Thomas Marsh here, it's not necessarily that he's mad that Heber C. Kimball was sent on a mission. It's that he's mad that somebody took his place. He's His pride is injured, basically. That becomes a theme throughout Thomas Marsh's 
a remainder of time in the church. Remember, Thomas Marsh is one of the early converts to the church. He shows up in section 31 of the Doctrine and Covenants after having only read 16 pages of the Book of Mormon. He converts and he is baptized. And when the first Quorum of the Twelve is called in 1835, Marsh is made the Quorum President. Um, Marsh receives instructions and Marsh tries to to his credit, unite the Quorum of the Twelve. Uh, Heber C. Kimball later remembered that Marsh read the revelation to him and Brigham Young, remembering in it God told him what to do, that he was sustained, Brother Joseph, and to believe that what Brother Joseph said was true. Now, Marsh does make an effort to reunite the Quorum of the Twelve, but in the months that follow, uh, he kind of goes up and down. In fact, by August or September of 1838 in far west Missouri, uh, Marsh falls into full-blown apostasy. You might remember the thing that finally leads to Marsh's apostasy is the well-known cream-stripping story uh, that gets told often in General Conference. What basically happened was that Thomas Marsh's wife, Elizabeth, became embroiled in a controversy with Lucinda Harris, who was the wife of George W. Harris. The two had an agreement that they would share milk from their cows to make cheese. And Lucinda accused Elizabeth Marsh of keeping keeping cream strippings considered to be the best part of the milk for herself. The argument was so serious, it was actually mediated by church officials, and it got so bad that Marsh even appealed to the first presidency, who sustained earlier rulings that Elizabeth was in the wrong. Apparently, by the time this happened, Thomas Marsh was so upset that he stated, quote, he would sustain the character of his wife, even if he had to go to hell for it. Um, Marsh shortly after apostatizes, and I'm sure it was more than just the cream strippings that caused Marsh to apostatize, but it's interesting that something like that caused him to really, really get upset. In fact, he gets so upset that after he leaves the church, he swears out an affidavit against church leaders, accusing them of instigating violence and saying that, quote, all the Mormons who refused to take up arms in difficulties with the citizens would be shot or otherwise put to death and charging that no Mormon dissenter would leave Caldwell County alive. So he says that the leaders of the church are trying to kill the people that have left the church because of these accusations, Joseph Smith is arrested and placed in Liberty jail, which we're going to get to a little bit later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, as the revelation continues, verse 11, after the Lord tells him to be humble, the Lord also says, Thomas, I know your heart. I've heard your prayers concerning your brethren. Be not partial towards them in love above many others, but let thy love be for them as for thyself. Let thy love abound in all men unto all those who love my name. So the Lord tries to get Thomas to work with the 12. He says in verse 12, pray for thy brethren of the 12, admonish them sharply for my name's sake, and let them be admonished in all their sins and be faithful unto my name. Thomas B. Marsh isn't the only person who's having problems uh, in the Quorum of the 12 either. In fact, uh, those apostles that I mentioned earlier, uh, John Boynton, Luke Lyman Johnson, Parley P. Pratt are really, really struggling. Now, in defense of Parley P. Pratt, who is one of my most favorite figures uh, from early church history, it's not just the bank that's causing him distress. He's going through a lot of stuff right now. Uh, Parley P. Pratt, for instance, uh, lost his wife. His wife, thankful Pratt is buried in Kirtland. She died while giving birth to Parley's uh, son. And he's overwhelmed by grief at losing his wife and upset over the loss of investments he'd made in the Kirtland Safety Society. And he's struggling with health too. In fact, Parley gets up and openly criticizes 
uh, Joseph Smith in a public discourse. Later on in his autobiography, Parley Pratt acknowledges, quote, there were jarrings and discords in the church at Kirtland. Many fell away and became enemies and apostates. There were also envyings, lying, strifes, and divisions, which caused much trouble and sorrow. By such spirits, I was also accused, misrepresented, and abused. And at one time, I was also overcome by the same spirit in great measure, and it seemed as if the very powers of darkness, which were against the saints, were let loose upon me. So Parley acknowledges that he is guilty of what he's been accused of, um, and he comes very, very close to leaving the church. In fact, interestingly, Parley P. Pratt is pulled back from the brink of apostasy by a surprising person. Uh, Parley P. Pratt uh, begins to criticize Joseph Smith, um, when he runs across a young British convert that he'd baptized in Canada a few months earlier, this little convert has probably come up to him, tells him that Joseph Smith has fallen into apostasy and that the church is ruined. And this little English convert uh, turns on Parley and says, I'm surprised to hear you speak so, Brother Parley. Before you left Canada, you bore a strong testimony to Joseph Smith being a prophet of God and to the truth of the work he has inaugurated. And you said you knew these things by revelation and the gift of the Holy Ghost. You gave me a strict charge to the effect that you or though you were an angel from heaven or anyone else was to declare that, I should not believe it. Now, Brother Parley, it's not man that I'm following, but the Lord. The principles you taught me led me to him, and I now have the testimony that you rejoiced in. If the work was true six months ago, then it's true today. If Joseph Smith was then a prophet, he is now a prophet. And Parley is so moved by this little English convert's words that he goes to Joseph Smith in tears, he confesses, and Joseph Smith forgives him. By the way, the little English convert is John Taylor, the third president of the church. Uh, it's funny how uh, Parley brings John into the church, and then six months later, John saves Parley uh, from leaving the church, and the two become close companions and friends throughout the rest of their life. Now, moving on to verse 16, um, Thomas B. Marsh is told and assured of his calling. The Lord tells him, Thomas, thou art the man whom I have chosen to hold the keys of my kingdom, as pertaining to the twelve abroad among all the nations, that thou mayest be my servant to unlock the door of the kingdom in all places where my servant Joseph and my servant Sidney and my servant Hiram cannot come. So, so the Lord basically affirms that Thomas still does have the authority to direct the Quorum of the Twelve, but he also reminds him that the Twelve serve under the direction of the First Presidency. If you jump down to verse 20, the Lord also adds, Whosoever receiveth my word receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth those the First Presidency whom I have sent, whom I have made counselors for my namesake unto you. In other words, yes, you do direct the quorum, Thomas, but the first presidency directs the church and you serve under their direction. Now, this is just a reaffirmation of what the Lord says earlier in section 107. In section 107, verse 24, the Lord says the first presidency and the 12 are equal in authority. But if you go to verse 33, the Lord also tells the 12 that they serve under the direction of the first presidency. So how can they be equal in authority, but the 12 serves under the direction of the first presidency? They're equal in authority only if anything happens to the first presidency. In that case, the 12 can take over and lead the church. We still see this 
happen from time to time when the president of the church passes away and the first presidency is temporarily dissolved into a new until a new prophet can be called. This revelation just basically affirms exactly what um, section 107 had already said, that the prophet, the first presidency, lead the church with the 12 and all of their organizations under their direction. If you're criticizing the prophet or presuming that you have more authority than him, then rightly you need to kind of check your bearings and make sure that you're still on the right side of the law. Now, moving on, the Lord uh, speaks to them uh, about the 12 and what's going on. He prophesies, this is in verse 24, of vengeance coming speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, and also speaks pretty directly about some vengeance that will come. He says, upon my house, this is verse 25, it shall begin. And from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord, first among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Therefore, see to it that you trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord, but purify your hearts before me and go into all the world. This is the Lord's most direct reference to what was going on in Kirtland. There was a serious apostasy linked to the Kirtland bank failure that's happening when this revelation is received. In fact, only a few weeks after this revelation is given, Warren Parrish, who's a scribe to Joseph Smith the prophet, actually leads a group of apostates to attack the Kirtland temple, fulfilling the Lord's earlier words that they would come into his house. So in section 109 and 110, you have the dedication of the Kirtland temple. Less than a year later, you have apostates attacking the Kirtland temple. There's also a movement in Kirtland to remove Joseph Smith as president of the church and replace him with someone else. The most well-known candidate was David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. So if you remember those earlier sections of the Doctrine and Covenants where you'd ask yourself, why did the three witnesses leave? This is when this starts to happen. They're not formally excommunicated from the church until a couple of months later in Missouri. But there's a meeting in Kirtland where several apostates say that they want to sustain David Whitmer as the leader of the church. Brigham Young gets invited to one of these meetings. Um, not a good idea. They invite Brigham Young to get up and say how he feels. Brigham Young later on said, I rose up and in a plain and forcible manner told them that Joseph was a prophet, that I knew it and they might rail and slander him as much as they pleased. They could not destroy the appointment of a prophet of God. They could only destroy their own authority, cut the thread that bound them to the prophet and sink themselves to hell. Now, the meeting breaks up. One guy even challenges Brigham Young to a fist fight. <laughs> Brigham Young later on says, this meeting was broken up without the apostates being able to unite on any decided measures of opposition. Then he said, this was a crisis when all earth and hell seemed leagued to overthrow the prophet and the church of God and the knees of some of the strongest men in the church faltered. By this siege of darkness, I stood close by Joseph with all the wisdom and power of God bestowed upon me and put forth my utmost energies to sustain the servant of God and unite the quorums of the church. Now, Brigham Young later on would say that of the original quorum of the 12 apostles, every single one of them spoke out at Joseph Smith in one point or another, except for him and Heber C. Kimball. Now, I want to point out that people like Wilford Woodruff and John Taylor are not members of the Quorum of the Twelve at this time. It's the original Quorum of the Twelve. And that's who this revelation is partly admonishing, not just Thomas B. Marsh, but his entire Quorum. The end of the revelation acknowledges that. Verse 30, For unto you, the Twelve, and those of the First Presidency, who are appointed with you to be your counselors and leaders, is the power of the priesthood given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of 
of times. The Lord tells them, verse 33, cleanse your hearts and your garments, lest the blood of this generation be required at your hands and be faithful until I come. For I come quickly and my reward is with me to recompense every man according to his work. Now, this plea that section 112 ends with to um, bring back the quorum of the 12, to ask the quorum of the 12 to purify their hearts, um, sort of highlights how severe the apostasy in Kirtland becomes. Now, by one estimate, and it's almost impossible to measure the severity of the apostasy, but by one estimate, about 10 to 15 percent of the total membership of the church in Kirtland apostatizes. The toll is even higher among the general authorities of the church, about one-third of the general authorities of the church are excommunicated, disfellowshipped, or removed from their callings. And this includes some people that have been with the church from the beginning, including uh, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, uh, start to disaffect during this time. Four members of the Quorum of the Twelve, John Boynton, Lyman Johnson, Luke Johnson, and William McClellan, uh, leave the church, and one member of the First Presidency, Frederick G. Williams, is excommunicated. Now, many of those eventually come back. Some of them never do. Uh, David Whitmer, for instance, Lyman Johnson and William E. McClellan never come back. Frederick G. Williams comes back. Uh, so does Martin Harris. Uh, so does uh, Oliver Cowdery. Thomas B. Marsh might have the toughest road of any of them. Uh, Thomas B. Marsh leaves the church, but in 1857, he does come back. This is after his wife, who was part of the reason why he left the church, has passed away. He comes back and rejoins the church and is invited to speak to a gathering of the saints. He gets up and talks about the reasons why he left the church and says, quote, I became jealous of the prophet. And then I saw double and I overlooked everything that was right and spent all my time looking for the evil. And then when the devil began to lead me, it was easy for the carnal mind to rise up, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. I could feel it within me. I felt angry and wrathful in the spirit of the Lord being gone. As the scriptures say, I was blinded. I got mad and I wanted everyone else to be mad. Now, at the end of his speech, Brigham Young actually stood up and asked the congregation for a vote to accept Thomas B. Marsh back into full fellowship. There was not a single hand raised in opposition, and Thomas B. Marsh died among the saints. He's buried here in Utah. Now, moving on to section 113. Section 113 is the first revelation Joseph Smith receives in far west Missouri. He is forced to finally flee Kirtland uh, in fear of his life on January 12th, 1838. Joseph Smith uh, later wrote about this really difficult time in his life. He wrote, a new year dawned upon the church in Kirtland and all the bitterness of spirit and apostate mobocracy, which continued to rage and grow hotter and hotter until Elder Rigdon, that's Sidney Rigdon, and myself were obliged to flee from its deadly influence, as did the apostles and prophets of old. And as Jesus said, when they persecute you in one city, flee into another. They travel 800 miles in the middle of winter uh, across the plains until they get to Missouri. And it's a difficult journey. For instance, Joseph writes, the weather was extremely cold. We were obliged to secrete ourselves in wagons, sometimes to elude the grasp of our pursuers who continued their race more than 200 miles armed with pistols and seeking our lives. They frequently crossed our track. Twice they were in the houses where we stopped. Once we tarried all night in the same house with them, with only a partition between us and them, and heard their oaths and imprecations and 
and threats concerning if they could catch us. And late in the evening, they came into our room and examined us, but decided we were not the men. At other times, we passed them in the streets and gazed them upon them and they upon us, but they knew us not. So Joseph felt like he received spiritual protection. When he gets to Far West on March 14th, fortunately, he is warmly greeted by the saints there. And shortly after he arrives, uh, some of the saints sit down with him and ask him questions about some Old Testament passages in the book of Isaiah that Joseph receives answers to by revelation. So these revelations are originally found in Joseph Smith's scriptory book, a little notebook that Joseph Smith keeps and his scribe George Robinson writes down on them. The first part of the revelation um, is called Questions on Scripture, and the second part is labeled Questions by Elias Higby. And the first two, three questions all relate to Isaiah chapter 11, a chapter that was quoted to Joseph Smith uh, when the angel Moroni first appears to him in 1823, and the second, t- the the last two questions relate to Isaiah 52, one of the most important passages on the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, these uh, passages are written in revelatory language. We believe that they're revelation, even though they're they're asking about questions. So you'll note if you look in verse one, who is the stem of Jesse, spoken of in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verses of the eleventh chapter of Isaiah. Uh, the answer, verily thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. Now, this is interesting because Isaiah 11 uh, speaks of the royal family of David, the descendants of the house of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. In the King James Bible, the word stem is used. However, the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses in his prophecy is closer to the word for stump. So, another biblical translation of Isaiah 11, one, for instance, reads, a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. And Isaiah using the word stump seems to indicate that the vitality and the life in the house of Jesse are gone and the family would just basically be a, a dead stump. That's why it's interesting that verse two interprets the stump as Jesus Christ. This interpretation could possibly have a double meaning. The first meaning deals with the lineage of Christ. In Isaiah's day, the vitality and the strength of the house of Jesse was nearly spent. Isaiah's living right before Israel uh, completely falls apart. Um, not Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And um, with the birth of Christ, a descendant of David and rightful king of Israel, new life comes out of this dead stump. And the true mission of the house of Jesse finally becomes known, that they're not just to rule Israel, that a descendant of Jesse will redeem the earth. The second meaning might actually point to the resurrection of Christ. So you remember, a stem actually should be translated as stump, like a dead stump. If Christ is the stump, um, that might be because when we see a tree stump, we just assume that's it. The tree is gone. Just like people assumed after Jesus had died that he was gone forever as well. But he comes back to life. And that tree, which uh, appeared to just be a dead stump, comes back to life as well. This could be emblematic of Jesus's resurrection and return to life when everybody believed that he was gone for good. And the promise that it gives to us that if the house of Jesse, which appeared by all accounts to be dead and gone the day that Jesus was crucified, can come back to life, we receive a similar promise that we'll all be resurrected. Now, moving on, verses 3 and 4 ask about a rod spoken of in the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And the Lord's answer is that the rod is a servant in the hands of Christ, who's partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim. 
uh, or of the house of Joseph on whom there's laid much power. Then verse five talks about the root of Jesse, who the Lord identifies as a descendant of Jesse, as well as Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs my priesthood and the keys of my kingdom for an ensign and the gathering people in the last days. Now, most Christians believe that the rod is Jesus, that their interpretation is that the rod would be closer to shoot like a, a branch that comes out of the dead stump. In this one, uh, it identifies the rod as a descendant partly of Jesse and of Ephraim. So it's not Jesus. Jesus is just a descendant of Jesse or of Judah. And we don't know specifically who the rod is supposed to be, but the most likely candidate is Joseph Smith. Uh, the root of Jesse is most likely the same person as the rod, since they're also identified as someone who, quote, rightly belongs to the priesthood, the keys of the kingdom for the gathering of my people in the last days. Now, um, neither Joseph Smith or Jesus were ancestors of Jesse or David in the sense that we use roots um, sometimes means ancestors, but it also could be that roots means that there's still life within the house of Jesse. Um, Joseph Smith was a descendant of Ephraim. This passage most likely identifies him as a descendant of Jesse as well. And Joseph Smith's lineage is the subject of uh, revelation itself in the Doctrine and Covenants. You remember section 86, the Lord said to Joseph Smith, this is in verses 8 and 10, uh, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers, ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, and have been hid from the world with Christ and God. Therefore, your life and lineage have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of the holy prophets since the world began. Now, moving on to the questions put forth by Elias Higby, he asked about Isaiah 52, where the Lord talks about putting on your strength and your beautiful garments. The answers the Lord gives is that the power of the priesthood would again return to Zion, and that Zion would put on her strength to put on the authority of the priesthood, which has a right by lineage. Um, the first verses of Isaiah 52 they're talking about here talks about Zion and putting on its beautiful garments and arising from the dust. This revelation clarifies that... Um, the redemption of Israel in the latter days comes through the power of the priesthood. The revelation also establishes the captivity of Israel is not physical, it's spiritual. The lost tribes of the Israelite family are lost in the sense that they don't know their real identity and purpose. The Book of Mormon is an instrument designed to gather Israel. You remember on the title page of the Book of Mormon, it says specifically it was created to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel the great things that the Father hath done for their fathers. Um, and breaking the bands about her neck means that Israel can only be saved by accepting the commandments and covenants of the Lord administered by people that hold the priesthood. Now, one more stop, and that's section 114 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 114 is really, really short. Um, it's just a couple verses long, uh, but it's about someone that's really, really important in the history of the church. That's David Patton. Um, David Patton is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, in fact, David Patton is known among the early saints for his his courage, his um, his faith in the face of trials and afflictions. One person wrote, quote, Elder Patton has become almost legendary in the history of the church for his courage and personal power in the face of adversity. He was a fearless defender of the faith and also the prophet Joseph Smith. Elder Patton stood six feet, one inch tall, weighed over 200 pounds, and he was a man of great physical strength. The saints in Missouri, where this revelation was received, called 
David Patton, Captain, fear not. And you'll recall in the Revelation, the Lord tells David Patton to basically settle his affairs, get ready to serve a mission, and um, to make sure that he gets ready to take the 12 along with him to testify and bear uh, good tidings of the gospel. This could be a recognition of section 118, where the 12 are given a mission to go over the great waters and teach the gospel in Europe, in Britain specifically, where they convert thousands of people to the church. Um, but let's talk a little bit about David Patton. Uh, David Patton is a convert of the church in 1832. Uh, one of the people David Patton converts is a future president of the church, Lorenzo Snow. Lorenzo Snow later said about David Patton, what impressed me most was his absolute sincerity, his earnestness, and his spiritual power. Now, another lesser known fact in church history was that David Patton, if everything had gone according to plan, would have been the original president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We talked earlier about how Thomas Marsh became president of the Quorum of the Twelve. When the entire Quorum of the Twelve was called in 1835, the only way to determine seniority was by age. And so they just asked everybody how old they were, and Thomas B. Marsh was the oldest, and so they made him the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. David Patton was the next oldest, then Brigham Young, then on down. Um, unfortunately, Thomas B. Marsh misremembered his birthday which wasn't that uncommon back then. They didn't keep records as well as we did. We did research in the 20th century and found out that Thomas Marsh was actually uh, younger than David Patton. David Patton was born November 17, 1799, while Marsh was born November 1st, 1800. But Marsh mistakenly believed his birthday was in 1799. This was never discovered in David Patton's lifetime. And if it had been known, David Patton would have been the original president of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, not Thomas B. Marsh. Now, David Patton isn't perfect. He does have his struggles. In fact, he almost apostatizes in Kirtland when he comes under the influence of Warren Parrish and a few other apostates. In fact, Brigham Young said that David Patton and Thomas B. Marsh came to Kirtland in the fall of 1837, and he went to Joseph Smith, Brigham Young said, with his mind prejudice and insulted Joseph. He even said Joseph Smith slapped David Patton in the face and kicked him out of the yard, and, Joseph, and Brigham notes, this done David good. Apparently, uh, David and Joseph reconcile after this incident because there's no other mention of David's apostasy from this. In fact, David not only um, stays in the church, he becomes a, a brilliant defender of the church. Wilford Woodruff um, commented to David Patton's biographer that this revelation led David to say to the prophet that he wanted to die a martyr for the church. And Wilford Woodruff recalled that Joseph Smith was moved when David said this. He looks at David and says really sadly, David, when a man of your faith asks the Lord for anything, he generally gets it. Now, a couple months later, David leads a contingent of far west militia to rescue three hostages uh, that were captured by hostile Missouri militia. Uh, when they find them, David Patton, Captain Fear Not, charges right into the enemy camp. He's exposed to fire, and he is hit. Uh, he and two other Latter-day Saints are hit and fatally wounded. One Missourian's killed in the skirmish. David is taken back to his home, where he speaks to his wife, Phoebe Ann, and tells her, whatever else you do, do not deny the faith. A few minutes before his death, he prays, Father, I ask thee in the name of Jesus Christ that thou would release my spirit and receive it unto myself. Then he turns to the men surrounding his bed and said, Brethren, you have held me by your faith, but do give me up and let me go, I beseech you. And he dies a few moments later. At the following day, at David Patton's funeral, Joseph Smith 
remarks, there lies a man who's done just what he said he would. He's laid down his life for his friends. David Patton becomes the first apostolic martyr of this dispensation, the first apostle to give up his life. So in these sections, you see contrasted the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Joseph Smith um, trying to keep the church together in the midst of this financial crisis. People like Thomas B. Marsh assisting, then falling away. People like David Patton and Parley P. Pratt falling into apostasy, then coming back from the brink. Better than ever, partly serving a mission in England, David giving up his life. And the Lord, I think, uh, gives some of these revelations, especially section 113, as a way of helping Joseph Smith know that he's not cast off. Section 113 is a clear reference to Joseph Smith as a chosen person designated to hold the priesthood and bring about the restoration in the latter days under the direction of Jesus Christ. And these sections, which bear testimony of both Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ, are so important to let us know that sometimes in the midst of difficulty and apostasy, when it seems like everybody around us is faltering in their faith and really struggling, it's important that we hang on and understand and know what our destiny is. A lot of these sections, especially section 113 in some sense, are like Joseph Smith's patriarchal blessing. And those blessings can give us strength and fortitude when we need it in the midst of difficulties. So I hope that you have a great experience studying the scriptures this week, and you'll remember to stay on the path and avoid the types of apostasy that cause so much difficulty for the church in Kirtland and Missouri. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you had a great experience, and you'll check back on our podcast for a number of wonderful hosts, including David Ridges, who'll keep guiding you through the Doctrine and Covenants. My name's Casey Griffiths, the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, and I will see you again soon.